I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This week's episode has a trigger warning for potentially upsetting subject matter. Check the show notes at www.bitchesoncomics.com to find out more. Good morning, night, afternoon, evening, daytime, supper, nighttime. I am Sarah Century. And I'm Essie Fleenor. Welcome we are, to Bitches on Comics. <laughs> <laughs> we are Welcome Bitches on to, Comics. To bitches. <laughs> we are welcome. <laughs> and we'd like to welcome you. All right, we have a question from Michael. Who is the number one female comic character whose potential hasn't quite been tapped yet that you want to be handed the keys to do whatever you want with them? Sarah. All of them. <laughs> Sarah wants all of them. Literally everyone. None of them have gotten the credit that they are due. But I'm going to say, if I have to choose one, I'm going to go with two. And <laughs> <laughs> the first one I want to do is definitely Poison Ivy. This is a character who has a huge fan base around her for stories that haven't been told with her yet. So she is a character who's an environmentalist. She is a feminist. She sometimes kills billionaires, which I Love think it. that we're all becoming increasingly more in favor of as time goes on. She's hot as F. Yeah. Everything about her is really cool. And she has been villainized for so long, which really speaks to how rigid Batman's morality is and how rigid our society's morality is while still allowing things to happen. Like, for instance, mass extinction. That dichotomy, I guess, is something that nobody's really ever answered with Poison Ivy, where she kind of is right about things. She does the right thing a lot 
in a way that people don't give her credit for. And Batman is completely unwilling to hear her after she does the first crime or two on her list, right? Well, it's interesting too, because, you know, we've talked about Swamp Thing and how Swamp Thing's gender is by no means settled Mm -hmm. and by no means what most people think of their gender to be, but still tends to be more masculine, Mm -hmm. gets to be redeemed, has a very similar approach in some ways, has murdered people, has done things that we would consider, if we're thinking on a human scale of morality, something immoral. Yeah. But who does it for the sake of the green? Yeah. And it's and weird how he or they get sort of reformed or understood. Whereas redemption Poison Ivy, arc. Redemption arc. Thank you. That's what I was trying to think of. Whereas Poison Ivy doesn't get that. Yeah. And Poison Ivy also doesn't get that level of power because every time mm. we see her be powerful, it's undermined by something. She's losing control. She's not able to keep her body together, which is something that's happening in the new series of Poison Ivy where she just can't keep her body together and she needs Lex Luthor's like weird gift in order to be able to keep herself even together as a physical form. We don't really know where that story is going to go, but it's just kind of a repetitive thing with her. So where would you take her? Just a better place. I think that (laughs) she would have to be probably just one of the most complicated moral characters because we have to dive into what she does. Is it something that we can forgive? Is it something that's actually just? Because sometimes she's killing people who have done terror things. So is it good (laughs) that she's doing this? And also how often she pulls back from doing that, how often she pulls back from the executive decision of actually killing somebody where her autonomy is in the story what she contributes to the world the fact that she is somebody who's a genius botanist and is never given that intellectual agency is a major major problem and i think that all of those things thinking about all of the epic questions that are posed by poison ivy are things that just have never even been addressed by writers so i would do something with that definitely would you take her away from all the characters she's usually presented with or what do you think? I l- really like her with Harley Quinn, but I think that the direction that they keep trying to take Harley Quinn doesn't leave room for her to have a serious relationship. And Poison Ivy is somebody who is a lot more serious. The way that they are good together is whenever they meet at the right place where Harley is being kind of silly, Poison Ivy is being more serious, but then they kind of flip a little bit, sometimes just Poison Ivy is the more playful one. That kind of situation where you can actually see a balance between them because lately there just hasn't been a balance. It's Poison Ivy falling, like just absolutely falling apart at Harley's, you know, like at her Mm. feet basically. And it just is not that fun to read, especially if you like both of them a lot. Because I like Harley Quinn too, but she just has story after story where people give her all of the credit, all of the attention. She's about to have a movie that's just about her, essentially, that is the birds of prey, the whole group, but it's just about her pretty much. I don't know. Poison Ivy is somebody who really deserves to be able to stand on her own too, and that never happens with her. She's always auxiliary to Harley Quinn, just like Harley Quinn for a long time was auxiliary to the Joker, right? But they obviously have a better relationship. I just think that right now what they're doing with Harley Quinn would make it difficult for Poison Ivy to have a good, solid relationship with her. But in this scenario, you have I can do whatever, then they're going to be in love forever. Oh my god, I love them so much. I want them to be together forever. I love them. Come on. Oh, I love it. The second person that I would do would probably be Amora because Amora is a character also like Poison Ivy who was completely defined by really sexist tropes and 
This is Amora the Enchantress, right? Yes, okay. Amora the Enchantress, which is why I didn't say the Enchantress, because the Enchantress is also a DC character, as we all know. <laughs> <sighs> so many characters named the same thing. But Amora, obviously, is from the Thor universe. Was she in any of the movies? I thought that she, she was, was for a minute. Agents but... of S.H.I.E.L.D. She right. was in an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's right. I remember that. It's actually now. really good. Which is good. Yeah, she was good in that. Not fleshed out to the extent or no. anything. No, no, no. None of that. She hasn't really approached that. Every now and again, I think Garth Enos did a story with Amora where her and Thor ended up actually being together before Heroes Reborn happened in the 90s. And that was kind of good because Amora was a better character. She was more understanding and kind of honing empathy. And she had failed. Everybody judged her kind of in the same way that they did Loki. She didn't really deserve that considering the fact that all she was doing was kissing people and stuff. Like Whereas like Loki's murdering yeah, what, tens of thousands of people. It's a little different. Amora was really cool in the, what is it, the Silver Age, I guess, where she would pop up with Loki. Always just, oh, how you must hate. Oh, Loki. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was my favorite because she was just so conniving. And, you know, that's part of the bad stereotypes around her. But Loki, once again, has gotten to have a full arc, a full redemption arc. All of this characterization, everybody has spent a lot of time on Loki now. And there's things that are unexplored with Loki, but not to the extent of Amora, who literally doesn't have any stories other than sometimes she was in guest appearances and doesn't do the most evil thing that she possibly could in that situation, which is as good as it gets for her, right? But then we never talk about her. We never talk about what her life is like. There's no way that she just sits around thinking about what boy she's going to kiss next, right? You see these stories with her where she's just behind the scenes being like, and I'm going to get Thor. He'll be the next one I kiss. I hate Lady Sif because Thor chose her. Yeah, and it's, you know what should happen. (laughs) (laughs) I think I know, Sarah. (laughs) They should hook up. Anyway, maybe that'll happen in my story. You don't know. Regardless of what happens in my story, I just think that she deserves a better story. I think that she deserves to be more fleshed out. She's been around since forever ago. She popped up, I think, in Journey into Mystery number 102 or something, which makes her one of the oldest villains in Marvel and just never has any kind of story arc behind her other than very spotty ones. Well, not to say any agency. Yeah. She's so often being manipulated between Loki and Thor and yeah. Sif and Odin. And- yeah. And what's her story? What does she want to do? Yeah. Where did her powers come from? I like her with Scourge, too. I think that yeah, her whole relationship with him is really interesting because she's always supposed to be the character who is manipulating him and dragging him along and things but the fact that that's a bad trope really makes it not as good right we don't get to see it fleshed out whenever their feelings are really complex for each other so I think that that's worth looking into I just think she hasn't been given a chance you know I saw one of the movies it was I think it was on Netflix it was like Thor versus Hulk It was like a Saturday. I could not do anything else with my day. I needed to watch a dumb animated film. And Amora is in it and Loki's getting her to help him hurt everybody. And I thought it was interesting because she, in the end, ends up being the reason that no one dies. Because she's the one who changes her mind, who sees that she was too upset, who sees all these things. And like you said, it's still a bad trope of like jealousy and whatever. But I agree with you. I think there's such a nugget of cool stuff there that could go in so many better directions. 
I loved both of yours, Sarah, because I really love Poison Ivy and I really love Amora. They're so good. I also love them both because of you. <laughs> you know, you are the person who has told me about them, what they could be, and you've written these cool articles. Google them. <laughs> and I just, it's made me really think carefully about how we do represent characters, especially female characters. Not sexy that I, characters. Yeah, sexy. Sexy lady. Oh, she's evil. <laughs> <laughs> she's sexy. Clearly she's evil. Oh. Check. Sometimes she's not sexy then she's less evil. <laughs> mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. So my two female characters that I would love to tackle are Elsa Bloodstone, who is a monster hunter. <sighs> What's your I, favorite Elsa story so far? Have you read ones that you liked? I actually really like when she's an A-Force. A- yeah. And she goes and helps Nico Minoru mm-hmm. with her bug problem. It connects to Civil War Two. This is when Captain Marvel's like a bad Captain Marvel. We don't love you no more, Captain <laughs> yeah. Marvel. She believes someone who can predict that someone's going to do a blah, blah, blah. And She's suddenly a cop. You're, it's bad. Why are you a cop all of a sudden? I get that you were in the Air Force, but you were always not about that, I guess. You always got out of there and defied the rule for the, the things that were just, even in the multi-million dollar movie that you were in, that yeah, 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 yeah. made, that you should, if you were going to be a cop, then it seems like that would be where you would be a cop. Exactly. But instead you chose a comic written by Brian Michael Bendis. Ooh, wonder what could be going on there. So Elsa Bloodstone ends up being this sort of comical character who, she's British, she's from a long line of monster hunters, I believe her dad was a monster hunter, and she has like this mystical destiny that is really different than I think a lot of the characters. She's not, you know, I I don't think she has any superpowers. She's super just great. Snarky? Super snarky, super Super hot. Super cool, super good bangs. How rude. No one looks good in bangs except for (laughs) Elsa Bloodstone. Also Lizzo. Lizzo looks good in Mm -hmm, bangs. mm -hmm. And she is really good at killing monsters. And her mystical destiny is she has to keep monsters from breeding to the point of being able to take over the planet. So she's actually breaking up mating pairs is like part of her job in life. Yes, she is pro-choice. Absolutely. Absolutely out there doing. pro of choices. Planned Parenthood. For monsters. For monsters. Honestly, it's a gift. She's awesome, but she is a very small character in most of her storylines. She ends up being like sexy and snarky, and there's not like a lot of depth underneath that. Right. Except for in A-Force where she has this one time where she's being, like there's a point where everyone's fears are manifested and they have to live with their manifested fears. And that's where she has to face a world where she wasn't breaking up their breeding pairs and they've taken over the planet. Mm-hmm. Killed all her friends. Also my worst fear. Same. We have very logical fears here at Bitches on Comics. So I I would love to take Elsa Bloodstone and take her in her destiny direction and take her dark and let her really face like, what are monsters? What does it mean to have a job where you're supposed to cull monsters? Could there be good monsters? Who is she? Why does she have that destiny? Kind of ask that question that I would love to see the answer be like something like what the Buffy answer is. Like you're tied to monsters. They're a part of who you are. Yeah. And so then how do we break this cycle of constantly killing this quote unquote evil thing. I always love breaking down any boundaries of good and evil. And so I think that then she could do some really cool stuff in that gray area. And then you have the access to the entire Marvel supernatural world. So the amount of guest stars that you could have in that series would be out of control. So fun. She's such an affable character. Mm -hmm. Even though she's like kind of a jerk, she's like the best kind of jerk. You know, one where you're like, this is funny. 
not cruel. Wouldn't she do a really good team up with Damon Hellstrom because he's so serious and Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> she's not serious. That yeah. is not she is joking. She's got her big gorgeous red ponytail and her like high boots and her giant shotgun, you yeah, know. Yeah, and it's not a big deal to her, is like the situation that you always get. Totally. It's I think she's been killing hard. monsters since she was like nine. She's used to it. She's always like kind of annoyed when people like, freak out about monsters. She's like, <laughs> Are you just not paying attention? They're day everywhere. In, day out. We've all been dealing with monsters you don't need to worry about them yeah so i love elsa i would love to write her and the other one is more of a minor character from the runaways which is clara plast which is like a joke on chloroplast and she is like poison ivy someone who can control she calls it talk to plants she's actually from like 1904 1907 somewhere in there and the runaways travel back in time they have to find some technology blah 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 there's always some reason you travel back in time and they save a bunch of children from a building fire and she's one of the people that they meet that way i can't remember if she was in the fire or if she just saw them save them what stinks about her story is that she's a survivor of sexual assault she's 11 i think or 12 and she's married to a middle-aged man at the time in new york i believe and her life is just fucking terrible she's raped on a regular basis she works all day she has this ability to grow roses she loves roses but really any plant but she loves roses and that's like her only joy she gets in the world then she meets molly who's the youngest of the runaways they're about the same age they bond and molly kind of points out to her like you shouldn't be married to an old man and have sex with him and the way she does that is by being innocent molly molly's like had this horrible life in many ways but has been able to be innocent and so you get this contrast that is heartbreaking really unfortunately it seems to have been done in the comics for sort of shock factor or like look how good the good guys are they save someone from being raped a lot and it reminds me of saga when the will goes to the sex worker planet and is like surprise me and they send him a nine-year-old i think and he's a good guy because he doesn't rape her and he tries to save her but he can't because she's an indentured servant kind of thing it's terrible anytime sexual assault is used to like motivate a male character or to like shock people into caring about someone or to show how good your good guys are i'm pissed i'm not there for it as a survivor i'm not here for it And so I think Chloroplast has this incredible ability. When you think about it, she has the same ability Steven has, Steven Universe, the ability to heal things. So she can literally heal the planet. She can heal herself. She doesn't need someone else to heal her. And we've really only seen her as a child. I would love to write a grown-up version of her in the world, healing her pain, helping other people heal, doing that growing plants out of nowhere goodness. And I think it could be really cool. Mm -hmm. It would be really cool. But this is definitely one that just goes on forever because I would love to do Abby Arcane. I would love to do Lois Lane. I would love to do... There's such a big list of characters that just haven't gotten their due. Zatanna. That's another character nobody writes. I mean, some people do now, but for a long time was just really underutilized. Yeah. And then I I did want to also, because I am non-binary, I wanted to talk about two non-binary characters I'd love to write. And you know them both pretty well, too. So tell me what you think they should have, too. So the first is Xavin, who is from Runaways. Xavin is a scroll, and the way that their story sucks currently is that Carolina, who is Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, you might know her from the TV adaptation, she glows rainbow color. It's so fucking queer and cute. I can't even handle it. In the comics, she comes on to Nico 
Nico's like, whoa, I'm straight. I don't roll like that. And it's weird and it makes things awkward. And then Carolina like leaves the runaways. Then she comes back to the runaways. Then she meets Xavin. Xavin first shows up in a masculine form. And the comic kind of leaves it gray where I think there's a reading of it where you could feel that the only reason Xavin changes to a female form is to manipulate Carolina to be with them. That's not what's true to Xavin when you read how Xavin thinks about their gender and about their form. They feel the most like themselves when they are in transition, moving between forms. And so I think it raises some interesting questions about scrolls that we don't really examine because scrolls are usually our baddies outside of, again, the Captain Marvel film. And so I think that we could have an interesting conversation about what gender means through that lens and let Xavin have evolved. Because at this point, they're teenagers who've been betrothed to one another, trying to like make good on their parents' promises. I would love to see both Xavin and Carolina pass that. And then the other one, this is the one that I would like punch someone, not hard, not in the face, to be able to write, which is Doom Patrol's Rebus. Rebus is related to Larry Trainer's character and is not Larry Trainer. So right now, <laughs> if you've seen the adaptation or when the comics start, Larry Trainer is a gay dude from the 60s who the negative spirit inhabits his body and they have to figure out how to work together. It's an interesting story about, I think, at the end of the day, in internalized queer phobia. Later, starting, I think, around issue number 19, I think Grant Morrison, it changes. There's a point where, like, the negative spirit is separated out of Larry Trainer's body, and then Larry's in the hospital, and there's this black female doctor helping him, and then the energy spirit returns to Larry's body and takes, I think, I think it's Larry's body, and takes with them the black doctor. So now there are three entities living in one body, and that is Rebus. They present very much in a way where they're non-binary. Sometimes they will have, you know, they're always wrapped in the mummy wraps, but they'll have breasts and a package between their legs. They'll have, you know, affects in ways that seem more feminine or masculine. And I think that we've seen some of that character and has been written by a trans writer who did, I think, actually a quite excellent job. But I would love for us to have a resurgence of that character. Rachel Pollock. Thank you. Rachel Pollock. writer. Rachel Pollock did a lovely job with Rebus, so I don't want to And Doom Patrol in general. And Doom Patrol. Thank you. Good point and doom patrol in general i would love to get my hands on rebus and take them into the next era one of the big things about that storyline that's really cool is that rebus actually has to go through the experience of mourning the deaths of the other people that became rebus in order to access their greatest superpowers and thus save the world and so i think it has a really good message that could be made even more explicit now that we live in a, a you know Every year, I feel like we're getting more and more knowledgeable about gender and sexuality and more inclusive. We could write a very different story than what came out at the time. I could really, you know, push Rebus to really talk about, like, what does that reconciliation mean? And I think a lot of trans people, including myself, would say, you know, there is a former self that maybe needs to be mourned, maybe doesn't, maybe needs to be reconciled with, maybe doesn't. And that could be an interesting way to see Rebus grapple with that, but do it with other trans and non-binary characters. That's what I'd really like to do. I think both of those characters are really interesting based on the fact that they are both characters that are paired in some way with a gay person, somebody who is just explicitly gay. Yeah, Carolina is a lesbian. Lesbian. So, and then also Larry Trainer is homosexual, right? So these are both binary people. Like, I also am lesbian, therefore I always see things as a binary. That is something that is very normal for me. So the idea, obviously, of having those different sects of 
queer people has always been something that, to me, it merges a lot better than what people want you to believe it does. But the expression of gender identity in the face of a binary person, but also someone who is not truly binary, because even if you are, you know, I date women, you know, but then I understand, too, that there's a lot of gray area there, too. Like, it's not like that, right? Well, there are people who identify as non-binary lesbians. Right. There's, There's all these different gradations that I think people are feeling empowered to to name ourselves. So the way that they always kind of go, okay, so this person changes just so that they can be with the, this person who is that way or something like that. That's all stuff that needs to be called into question, in my opinion. And oh, yeah. it's all stuff that hasn't been called into question because the people who wrote these stories were people 10, 20 years ago or something like that who their mind didn't wrap that far, right? Like, they were usually straight men who were writing these characters. Obviously, Rachel Pollock, totally different story. But they had, like, just a different vocabulary around that stuff at the time and it doesn't always age super well but it also kind of shows us the beginnings of a conversation that has ended which is unfortunate because it should be a continuing conversation in comics absolutely absolutely i think that what i love about what you said sarah is that i'm a firm believer in like we belong together like Mm -hmm. queer people non-binary people trans people lgbtq people however people identify we belong together because we are what's going to take care of each other and also help each other grow right it is queer women who help me really think about my gender and queer men and now you know i get a lot more strength and support from other non-binary gender non-conforming and trans folks but i would have never gotten to that point had i not had relationships with love with people who do fit into a binary Mm -hmm. and so i think that it's really incredible to think about what could we do today with these characters who exactly what you said sarah you know limited vocabulary sometimes problematic vocabulary and i think a lot of people who would say like i love trans people i love gay people writing these stories doing the best they can with those tools that's why as with when we talk about batwoman we talk about yeah there were great batwomen comics and then you give it to a queer woman And Marguerite Bennett took Batwoman in an incredible direction. And that's the same way I think about these characters. Yes, you can have awesome storylines written by straight and or binary people. And we could take it somewhere else now today. And that's what I think I'd be really excited. And, you know, I don't even have to be the one to write them. I would love to, but I would love for someone else to do it too. I have to be the one to write them. But I have to be the one who writes only Poison Ivy and Amora. Yeah, if anybody else writes Poison Ivy or Amora, we're suing. Yeah, it's just unacceptable. I am baffled by my phone not ringing right now. (laughs) How is it not ringing? Hello? This is ridiculous. Are you out there? Marvel? (laughs) Marvel DC, can you hear us? Comic of the Week is Upgrade Soul by Ezra Clayton Daniels. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite thing is when you like a comic and you start your review by, yeah. Because yes, that's exactly how I feel about this comic. Yeah, it's so gross and touching. (laughs) Yes, it's so weird. It's like this bizarre balance of body horror and just tenderness. Yeah, the strangeness of how people interact with each other and relate to each other and how there's those distances between us. 
how we put ourselves in these strange, strange positions. All of that was just so mind-blowing to me. So if you were going to describe the plot. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I will give it my all. Yeah. So essentially, it is about a couple, Molly and Hank. Molly is a scientist and Hank is a comic artist, I believe. And they, on their 40th wedding anniversary, decide like, hey, let's clone ourselves. Like, (laughs) why wouldn't we? And everyone around them is like, yeah, you should do that. Because they're trying to sell them cloning. Yeah. No one is like, this is a terrible idea. Right. And because it is a terrible idea. It's such a terrible idea. But also there's the flashbacks or whatever that kind of tell you why exactly. they were at those places in their life where, first of all, she's getting pushed around by this young dude who has walked into her lab and is just trying to take over everything and he's being just an annoying monster. And then, of course, Hank is dealing with the thing where his father created this action hero and they cast a movie about him, but they cast a white actor instead of a black actor. So essentially his creativity is being ignored. Basically, they're both kind of aging in that way where they were already treated badly because of their status as woman and black man. And then it gets worse (laughs) as they get older. And so in order to find any kind of a feeling of worth or any of that, they decide that they have to resort to these kind of drastic measures of funding cloning research, for instance. Also, like part of the idea is it's not just that you have a clone, but that your consciousness moves into the cloned body. Mm -hmm. So you get this sort of second chance at life. Yeah, upgrade soul, for instance. (laughs) Ah, hmm, I wonder why it's called that. Yeah, I mean, I think you absolutely nailed it. it. feeds on this feeling I think a lot of us have who have been pushed to the margins of different creative endeavors, professional endeavors of like, oh, if only I knew how to deal with this system better the way that I do now, right. but could like start over. Yeah. Also like vampirism, whatever, immortality, like it plays on our feelings about dying. She wanted to keep going. And then there was that really interesting thing where Molly's clone says, you never loved Hank as a husband and now you expect me to. Do you understand how strange that is or something? Yes. And, I, and then and it's like Molly understands that she really hasn't been in love with Hank this entire time in that way, I guess. That they love each other, obviously, but that she hasn't loved him in that way. Yeah. And then their clones are living out these new lives. <laughs> and also their clones, we should probably know, are potato shaped. <laughs> yes. They're very haunting little beings. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's a great point too. Like each of them wants to individuate. So I think mm-hmm. there's some interesting questions that the graphic novel asks about cloning and ethics and what's personhood? What makes you a person? Are these clones right. separate people? And if so, like what rights do they have? And because essentially the consciousness swap doesn't work, right? right. Like that's, that's essentially the big inciting incident of the graphic novel is mm-hmm. like, Shit didn't go the way it was supposed to. Yeah. Um, Which is very compelling. Yeah. And also consistent. And then, of course, you see the research scientists have been doing this work under all of this pressure because they don't have funding and all of these things. Essentially, it's exactly all of the problems that we see with corporate America, all of the problems we see with scientific research funding, just kind of thrown into one single story arc, which is, to me, so fascinating. And gross and weird and yeah. cool and creepy and like, and just um, existential. It's like, it's so 
fraught. You know, you feel like so many different conversations are happening in Daniel's mind as he's creating this graphic novel, which actually originally came out in 2012 as a serialized app. So it was like an app you could interact with. And then they had like interactive installments where you could interact with it. that's so interesting. I had no idea. I I just read about that when I was reading about the novel because I knew how I liked it, but I didn't know anything about how it came to be. If you got to go to that and you're listening, please tell us what it was like because it sounds fascinating. Yeah. But I think even that, like, oh, wow, there's all this other set of questions that it seems to me Daniels is probably asking in those versions that probably don't translate directly into the graphic novel. And yet... The graphic novel is incredible. It doesn't feel like an iteration of something. Right. And I think, too, one of my favorite parts of the book was how odd the art style Mm. is and how good that artist is at showing that kind of gradual aging. Because we meet them, I believe, when they're like 40s. Or no, sorry, they're like a little bit older than that. But then they age even further, of course. Oh, like yes, Their yes. body undergoes a lot of ravages. I was thinking of the flashbacks when I was like, yeah, 40s, yeah. He does, with the flashbacks, a great job of showing you the age difference like you're describing. And these inciting incidents, right, that are seemingly minor in a lot of ways. They didn't really want kids and they didn't focus on having kids. And now they do want kids oh. because like they're getting to this place where they are disillusioned with their careers individually because they're realizing how little people will listen to you as you age (laughs) and you're in a professional environment. So even just the commentary on aging, I think, is fascinating and how that interplays with people's inability sometimes to get work in creative fields. Totally. In comics, we see that all of the time where people, you know, past the age of 50 or 60, they have arthritis now from sitting in desks for their entire lives. And then, you know, what are they supposed to do for their job? You know, we have like a lot of comic artists that end up working as janitors and stuff like that, or, you know, that end up homeless because they have bad medical bills. I think that for creative fields and for scientific fields, that's a very specific and important thing to be talking about. And they do it in such a interesting way, I guess. As you were talking, that was something that occurred to me, and it's something about the specificity of Molly and Hank's jobs in Upgrade Soul. Part of the science, because she's a genetic scientist, is that correct? I believe so, yeah. Because like she, she says that it's her own field. Right, so that's right, that that's, that's right. It's a fictitious field that she's mm-hmm. created through her scientific discoveries, that's right. Part of the question she's asking is about the nature of being alive in her scientific work. And I think that all art, to some degree, is, <laughs> is grappling with the questions of like what it means to be alive as well, from very different angles or maybe not so different angles depending on what kind of art or science you're engaging in but Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about that before you were describing that it's like of course they would have these crises of consciousness that would be different than someone who isn't in those fields maybe right yeah I think that all of the choices that were made in this were very very specific oh yeah the planning is really interesting in the way that the past comes back and the way that they're interplaying with their current state also, their interactions with their clones is like some of the most fascinating dialogue. And like I've disconcerting. Ever read. It's just yeah. like, I am so creeped out. Comforting and disconcerting at the yeah. same time, which is really what this comic is, is yes. just very disturbing and also just like, oh my God, they're so cute in this very upsetting way. Yes, yes. And you know, something we haven't talked about that for me really stood out was the colors. Mm-hmm. They're so specific. The palette is yeah. really. Really, really contained. Pastel and kind of, you see like a lot of yellows and I, I keep thinking oranges. of like, a, like an earthy red, yeah, you know, that like that, yeah. is throughout the graphic novel and the pallor of their skin, the yeah. clones. You know, it's like one of those graphic novels where every piece 
like you said, is so perfectly planned and coalesces so nicely. Yeah, and how the art, you wouldn't see it, I think, in a lot of generally in a superhero book or something For like sure. that. You a know, very different to, kind of one, maybe. The, <laughs> to the detriment of superhero books, of yes. course. But, you know, those artists, I think there's so many that are just so good at what they do, but they don't have... There's not a lot for them, I think, in uh, mainstream yeah. comics. It's always so interesting to see the projects that those that style of artist that is like so specifically suited for something, and then like they find it. Those are. It's always so interesting to me. I think to watch. Yeah, I just think Upgrade Soul is definitely one of my favorite graphic novels of the last decade. Yeah, it's really good. Required reading, absolutely. Yeah, definitely, and in that way. What it kind of reminded me of a little bit was Dan Close did a Velvet Glove cast in Iron a long time ago in his 8-Ball series. Mm. So it was alongside Ghost World. Oh, gotcha. But yeah, it reminded me kind of of that, but it had a lot more tenderness and hopefulness, I think, to it. So we kind of (laughs) exited the edgy 90s and (laughs) worked our way into this new world where we're allowed to feel how depressing it is and find our own catharsis in it, which is a really interesting pacing choice. And I think that it made a brilliant comic. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Absolutely. comic we're going to talk about is Zero Jungle. It's by Jeffrey Brown. Oh, I love it. So fun. It's such a fun fun comic. And Jeffrey Brown has been working on comics for a long time. And I've been able to kind of watch a lot of the stuff that is posted on Twitter and kind of the 
struggle and the journey and all of that. And just him being a very interesting and kind person who is genuinely just absolutely in love with comics. Oh, it comes through in the yeah. illustrations and the dialogue. I like it because the panels are all really full. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly it'll break and it'll be a full page panel that has a lot of really cool action poses sort of lined up, dink, 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 dink. Yeah. It just is really, really well done. It is. And yeah, I didn't know what I was getting into whenever I bought it. You know, it was one of those one of those $5 jumps that I made. I believe that, you know, there had been some tweeting back and forth of, you should maybe check out my comic, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. And I actually remembered to, and I'm glad that I did, because it means that I got this whole story. Jeffrey Brown, I think, is going to be appearing in the Bun and Tea anthology that should be coming up soon. That's edited by <laughs> Wawak, W-W-A-C folks mm. and it is looking really great so i'm excited to see what he does there i'm also just really stoked to see where he goes going forward because there's been moments when i'm reading it and i think this is the stuff about the 90s that i liked the stylism the focus on the inner character drama and then also this kind of surrealist but also realist kind of yeah, situation totally, totally. that you find yourself in i really like how the letters looks like handwriting and that sometimes they're jumbled but when they are it like fits the scene. Yeah. There's a reason it's jumbled. Yeah. Any of the elements of this story on their own, I don't like usually. Mm-hmm. These are not things I'm usually drawn to, but they come together so cohesively yeah. and so beautifully. And with so much enthusiasm. Oh my gosh. Just like such pure, unadulterated joy. Like Just love like of I comics. love comics yeah. so much. And I'm like, me too. I love <laughs> comics too. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I really, really love it. And it's just been great to watch the progression of getting better and better and better. I think that the stuff that is coming up is going to be really good. So definitely watch out for Jeffrey Brown. And I, yeah, if you can, if you can find it, grab Zero Jungle. Yeah. You just, you won't regret it. It's a really good, fun romp. Pretty much just clear out is Gumroad because the whole page is good. Another independent comic we have is Griffin, Galaxy's Most Wanted, written by Ben Kahn, art and colors by Bruno Hidalgo, color assistance by James Peñafiel, letters by Sal Cipriano. This comic was so fun. Oh my gosh, so fun. Yeah, I was really excited that Ben sent this over. They have been working on this, I believe, for a long time. Ben has been getting a little bit more notoriety around their comics and was recently nominated for an Ignatz for a different comic. And so being able to read this comic and kind of see them take more time and be more thorough in their story and kind of be able to go through a longer story has been really interesting and fun. I love the characters. Mm-hmm. I love them. There's a very Tank Girl energy kind yes. of alongside some of this stuff. Not that it reminds me strongly of Tank Girl, but just it has that energy, right? Kind of chaotic space-time energy. It's funny. It's really funny. So you open the first issue and this person is on trial mm-hmm. for, I can't even remember what. Calling everybody fascists. <laughs> and just is like mouthing off and is yes. like, you're fascists. You murder people. Forget you. Yeah, I'm guilty. Whatever. <laughs> and then they're like, we, we literally just asked you what you wanted for lunch. 
<laughs> and then she's like, okay, well, I want the chicken, obviously. <laughs> and then, then like, it just goes from there. And that's just the tone. It's playful. It's insightful. If you're going to do a space military in this, the year of our Beyonce, you need to be doing it in a way where it's critical. Yeah. And I think that they have managed to nail that in this story. Absolutely. It's, and it's fun. It's really fun to read through. That's been kind of my favorite thing is... I'm always reading really serious stuff, and sometimes I'll just pick up a comic expecting even more serious stuff, and I, you know, crack the cover, you see a very serious setup, and then you start to read, and you see the animation change, and you're just, oh, this is a funny comic. This is fun. We're having an adventure. Like, I'm totally here for this. So it was really fun. I loved it. I would recommend definitely checking out more of Ben Khan's work. Yeah, and absolutely. Griffin, Galaxy's Most Wanted, is a delightful romp through space. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it, that's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I'm bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Music provided by Earth Control Pill, which you can find at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.